Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Kayla Mason. And my name is Todd Ixenball, a.k.a. The Todd Father. And we have a great episode for you today. Today, we are talking with Alan Gannett. And Alan is the CEO of TrackMaven, which is a marketing analytics platform that large brands and high growth startups use to power data-driven creativity. And he also has like the easiest Twitter handle I've ever seen. He's at Alan. I want to know how he got <laughs> at Alan. Well, you we should have asked that when we talked with him. Oh, we should have. But he is also the author of a brand new book, which comes out today. Literally today. Today, we are talking with him about his brand new book, The Creative Curve. Caleb, that this book is phenomenal. One of the best books on creativity I've ever read. I've never seen anything like hands this. Hands down. Yep. Now, we have a great episode for you today, but we want to remind you that all throughout the whole month of June, we are releasing two episodes. Times two. Th- throughout, <laughs> throughout the week, we're going to release one on Tuesday and then one on Thursday, and we're doing that throughout the whole month of June. And so if you've missed some of these episodes, like last week's episode with Shane Snow, which dropped on Thursday. And then Sam Collier on Tuesday. Go back and pick those See up. See those things. They're going to be so good. Heck. Now. Yes. Before we get into our interview with Alan. We have resources to be able to give you. Caleb, what are our, is our resource of the week? I want to recommend a single podcast. The whole podcast is good. But if I'm you haven't, if you listen to this show and you don't listen to Carrie Newhoff's podcast, you got problems. Get on it. But I want to recommend one specific episode which came out a few Woo! weeks ago, mm. and it is episode one ninety three with Clay Scroggins, and I absolutely love the title. But he talks about how the digital disruption is changing everything in churches and businesses, Ooh. and mm. so all we could geek out on this for about that's the next a, that, that 10 or 15 minutes was like a that episode was like a religious experience for me exactly but really it talks about how online is changing the way that everyone changing does everything changing the game so before we geek, like i said we could talk about this we for could, about the we next, could do a whole episode yes, on this we could <laughs> but for the sake of time we're going to jump into our conversation with alan gannett right now well, Alan, we're so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today to talk about your book, The Creative Curve. Thanks, guys. I'm super pumped. You know, just as we get started, we always love to just ask people is what what made you want to write this book? Oh, my God. Um, you know, definitely a deep desire for self-harm and sadism. No, um, <laughs> writing a book is actually quite a bit of fun. Um I think for me, I, I, I spend my, my day job is I run a company called TrackMaven. That's a marketing analytics platform. Works with a lot of really big brands like MBA. You know, we work with GE, Marriott, Honda. And um, you work with these big brands and you talk to marketers. And there's this sort of like moment where you realize that like most of these marketers don't think of themselves as creatives. And they're like, well, I have to like hire an agency if I want to do something creative. It's this whole thing. And I was getting just like frustrated. I was like, no, no, no. Like creativity is not this like static thing that you're either born with or not. There's actually, it's, a, it's something you can learn and enhance. And so I started getting sort of like frustrated about this. And so I started giving a talk at marketing conferences a few years ago that was really sort of like a contrasting the mythology around creativity with the reality. And it was really based around a lot of the sort of like memoirs and autobiographies of some creative greats and how when you actually read their own stories, like the story is not one of sort of luck and genetic lottery. And so I was giving that talk and it was resonating really well. And so that sort of spiraled into a book proposal, which then spiraled into a book proposal, not just for marketers, but realized that like actually all creatives have this this like misinformation of that. Oh, like creativity is this like you know, this thing you're born with. And, you know, some of us are just struck with these sort of like divine moments of inspiration. And that's just not true. Mm-hmm. And so the book is really meant to be a, um, like a motivational uh, sort of kick in the pants. Yeah. Talk, talk to us about why do you think it is that most people are like, that creativity is for certain people, but usually it's not for me. Like there's no way that I could be a creative person. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with, and I, I hate saying this right now, but it's like fake news. I think a lot of it has to do with like, oh. you know, there's like this sort of media perception of creativity that is sort of sold. And, you know, I think about the movie Amadeus about 
uh, Mozart, which yeah. you know won eight Academy Awards, hundreds of millions of dollars in box office receipts. And in the movie, there's literally this scene of like three-year-old Mozart sitting down at a piano blindfolded uh, playing the piano for the Pope, right? And this is like crazy because the true story of Mozart is actually something more like this. When he was three years old, his father, who's basically what we would today call a helicopter dad, his father was like, hey, Mozart, I love you, but, which you should never say to a child, I love you, but you need to become the world's greatest musician. And to that end, I'm going to hire the world's best music teachers, and I'm going to have you practice every single day for three hours, every single day. And little three-year-old Mozart's like, okay. And he started practicing every single day for three hours with the world's best music teachers. When he was three, he wrote his first true piece of original music when he was 17, which still sounds impressive, except one, it wasn't very good. And two, that's after 14 years of practicing three hours daily with the best music teachers. So like, I hope you could write a concerto by then. You know what I mean? And like, so oftentimes what we think of as, you know, oh, these people were just like born with this is really the product of sort of mythology and, um, you know, sort of extended games of telephone. In fact, Mozart's super interesting in this regard because there's this myth that he would write music in his head without actually writing things down or without you know, playing it out at the piano. And it actually, that's the result of a letter that was found that was written by Mozart. But it turns out that that letter was forged by a music publisher who wanted to make Mozart seem more impressive. So like there's so much sort of like tall tales and fables when you start diving into creativity. So the true story of him is that he just worked ridiculous amounts. To ridiculous. To, to get to, I mean like three hours a day, you multiply that, you know, times 365. I mean, we're looking at well over a, well over a thousand hours a year. With the right. best teachers since he yeah. was three. So then you multiply that times, you know, whatever you said, 14 years or whatever, till he wrote his first um, concerto. And then we've got over 14, 15, 16,000 hours probably or more. It's crazy. Which, which is kind of that's, – that's, that is interesting. And so, you know, kind of break down for us what – you know, the title of the book is The Creative Curve. Talk to us about kind of the concept and what the creative curve is. Yeah, so one of the things that's so interesting is, so in the book, what I did is I split up the research into three categories. So one is I read basically like all of the most recent and over time, over the last hundred years, the most important peer-reviewed studies on creativity from neuroscience, psychology, and anthropology, and sociology. Then I interviewed about 25 living creative geniuses. So these were, you know, billionaires like David Rubenstein. These were, you know, Pasek, Pasek and Paul, who um, they did the music for uh, La La Land, Dear Evan Hansen, and The Greatest Showman. Like, not bad. Oh, my um, gosh. <laughs> yeah, like, pretty good, right? Um, and then I interviewed, uh, like, Nina Jacobson, who was the president of Walt Disney Motion Pictures and now is a producer on her own. And she did her hit her hit rates, like, she did The Hunger Games, and then she did American Crime Story, and she's about to come out with the movie version of Crazy Rich Asians, which is going to be this, like, huge global phenomenon, because the book's a huge global phenomenon. And so, interviewed this really eclectic set. And the third sort of input into my research was I interviewed um, all of the leading academics who um, study creativity today. So these are folks like Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, Candace Erickson, whose his research is what underlied um, Malcolm Gladwell's book Outliers, even though Malcolm Gladwell uh, miss did not accurately describe the research. And so I interviewed these sort of three streams, and um, what I realized, one of the findings I found, which was so interesting, was that we actually have a lot of really good science about what drives preference. What drives people to like certain things and not like other things? And what it really comes down to is as people, we have these two contradictory urges that at at one level doesn't make any sense, but when you dig in, it starts to make sense. So we both crave things that are familiar. This is the first urge. We crave things that are familiar. And the reason why is that our brains spend a lot of energy trying to keep us safe. So if you go back to prehistoric cave era, like you know, you're, if you see a cave that you've never seen before, your brain is like, don't go in there. But if you see a cave that like 
you spend every night in, you're like, oh, it's safe. I'm going to go in there. So you can think about this similarly like, you know, even though you might stay at a really nice hotel when you travel, but you still want to go home. Even your home's not as nice because it's there's something to it. There's something familiar. There's something safe about it. And so as humans, we have this urge to crave things that are familiar. But we have this other urge, which seems like a contradiction. Our other urge is that we also seek out things that are novel. We want things that are new. And this, again, goes back to evolutionary biology, where one of our one of our roles, um, one of our brain's roles is to help us find new sources of energy, food, reward. And so if you were a you know, hunter-gatherer and you were going in a forest or a field and you know, you're looking for new sources of energy, maybe you see a berry that is worth eating, right? Maybe that's going to be a new source of calories for you. And so your brain is constantly also looking for things that are potential sources of reward, so the result is we have these contradictory urges between novelty and familiarity. Novelty and familiarity. Now, that makes literally no sense because they are literally direct opposites. But it turns out that our brain is actually doing something very, very elegant. Our brain has these two contradictory urges as a way to balance. So for example, if you're in a field and you see a berry that looks nothing like a berry you've ever seen before, versus if you see a berry that kind of just looks like a weird strawberry, your brain goes, don't eat that thing you've never seen before. That There's too much risk that it could be poison. Versus that berry that kind of just looks like a weird strawberry, it's familiar to a strawberry. So you can eat it. It's a good, it's a good risk-reward ratio. So our brain is constantly balancing the risk-reward ratio of all these things in our environment, which leads to this really interesting phenomenon where what scientists have found is that the more you show something to someone, the more they're exposed to it, the more they like it because it becomes more and more familiar. But then at a certain point, they start liking it less and less because their novelty seeking wins out. It becomes too familiar. So the result is there's this bell curve relationship between exposure and familiarity to preference and likability. The more we see something, the more we like it, but only up until a point, and then we like it less and less with each additional listen. And you can think about this like, there's that new Drake song, Nice For What? I think that's the name of it. Yeah. And like the first time I heard it, I was like, this is terrible. And the third time I was like, oh, this is great. And the 15th time I was like, I will never listen to this song again. And so we experience this in all sorts of ways in our own lives. And so you know, there's this bell curve relationship, and it's called in science the inverted U relationship between exposure and preference. And I decided that was a little too obtuse for the book, and so I renamed it the creative <laughs> curve. And that's the idea of the creative curve is that you want to create ideas that are that right balance of familiar and novel. Great creative ideas are not the most innovative, they're not the most novel. They're actually the ones that are both familiar and novel. Think about like the first Star Wars. There's a Western in space, right? That's part of why we liked it. We knew the storyline. Um, so with this, my brain is going to this. I'm thinking of like every Justin Bieber song that ever comes out and how, <laughs> and how on the radio they play it so much to the point where we get sick of it. In marketing, this seems like it would be a humongous thing. I know you, you, know, you're into, you, you do marketing stuff. So why is it then – so what you're saying is it suggests that you don't want to overplay that stuff. Why do they do that? Yeah, so a couple a couple things. There's um, – so basically you can think about the creative curve as operating at multiple levels. It operates at an individual level, a group level, and a population level. And so you as an individual, the more you hear something, the more you like it only up until a point, then you like it less and less. So you get bored of nice for what, right? Yep. But that also that same phenomenon turns out happens at the group level and the population level. So everyone in society and culture is basically getting, is hearing things at sort of different levels and different um, frequencies. So for example, like a music critic is going to sort of get tired of a song way earlier than my mom because the music critic's going to hurt have heard the song you know many more times than my mom would have 
um, by the time my mom starts hearing the song on, you know, quote, mainstream radio. And so that's one of the things that's interesting is that as marketers, you have to be really aware and sensitive. I talk about this in the book is that you're not the audience. In fact, most marketers, most creators, most entrepreneurs, they actually um, over-focus on novelty because they see so much stuff already because they are the early adopters. They are the ones that are seeing things sooner and earlier than other people. And so when you're creating things for an audience, which all creation is, you really have to get in the head of your audience. So a lot of the book is also talking about how do you do that? How do you figure out, okay – what is my audience's preference for this going to be? That's okay. That makes that makes the whole that makes more sense then. Because I, I'm just I guess I'm just thinking of of how this all plays in the market. It just okay. Thank you for that. I, I I just needed to I needed to know that I'm not crazy. You're not crazy. Well, we're all crazy <laughs> in our own ways, but you're not crazy in the bad way. Well, speaking of being crazy and how I've had to work at it, um, one of the things that you. One of the things that you talk about, and you mentioned it earlier with, with Malcolm Gladwell, and how he, he talks about the 10,000-hour rule for becoming an expert. You, one of the things that you mention is that it's, it's a flawed – that's a flawed statement. Um, how is it flawed? Oh, my God. So this is one of the things that I think is just so, so interesting. And this sort of, again, goes to sort of the myth versus reality and how in creativity, a lot of the sort of science and stories we tell each other is that there's this extended game of telephone. So you know, Malcolm Gladwell in the book Outliers writes that the research shows that 10,000 hours of practice can make you world class in anything. OK, let's back it up. This is based on research done by Kay Anders Erickson, who's one of the sort of preeminent scholars around the study of talent and talent development. And he gets the research wrong in two different ways. First, what the research says is that 10,000 hours is the average across skills and across people. Different skills take different amounts of time usually because the amount of other people who have done it before. So, for example, becoming a world-class piano player takes an average 25,000 hours because so many people have done it before versus becoming a world-class digit memorizer, which is sort of a new thing that people do tournaments of, takes about 400 hours because it's newer, less people have done it. And so the skill matters. Also, the person matters. Different people have different sort of predispositions to certain things. So, yes. I believe, and most people who study talent believe, that anyone can become good at anything with enough practice, but it does take people longer amounts of time. So that's the first problem with it. The second problem is that in Malcolm Gladwell's book, he keeps referring to this as 10,000 hours of practice. That is not what the research says. The research says it's 10,000 hours of something called deliberate practice, which is actually something different. See, here's the difference between practice and deliberate practice. If 10,000 hours of practice made you good at things, then we should all be NASCAR drivers because we've all driven our cars for 10,000 hours. But merely doing something over and over again doesn't actually make you better at it. Actually, because your brain goes to something called <clears> – your brain tends to want to do something called automaticity where it just does stuff out of rote memory. This is why sometimes when you're driving on your commute, you sort of like lose track of time. You forget what happened and all of a sudden you're where you're supposed to be somehow. Mm -hmm. Deliberate practice is something different. <laughs> Deliberate practice is something different. Deliberate practice is a type of practice where you break down a skill into very, very small component parts. So, for example, if you're a basketball player, it might be like left-handed dribbling down midcourt. And you practice that small thing over and over again with some sort of feedback mechanism because it turns out that you have to be intentionally trying to improve in order to get better. And so merely driving the car, you don't get better at driving. You don't become a NASCAR driver versus you're saying, I'm going to practice you know, accelerating really, really fast through a sharp left turn. That'll get you better and make you into that NASCAR driver. And so Candace Erickson sort of, I think, maybe a little frustrated with this whole thing. And so it's funny in, in the book, he gave me this quote, which I was like, should I put this in? I was like, it needs to go in, um, which he says very bluntly, um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell misread my paper. And I think that sums it up pretty well. Uh, there you go. So one of the things that, that kind of popped into my head is um, this difference in, in practice. So, and, and then the other piece to that is skill. When you say like it, 
so for piano, you kept saying because so many people have done it. Is it just because there's so much to know, and so it takes more? Um, then it. So you talked about piano being twenty five thousand hours of in, of this um, this specific type of practice versus would you say digit memorizing, which is like four hundred hours? Is it just because mm-hmm. the field of knowledge is so is so broad? Is that what that is? So so basically, basically the, the way I would the way I would think about it is that. It's think about the it's like a marketplace, right? The more people that have tried to do something, inherently the higher the threshold to be the world's best is going to be at. And so, skills that have been around for really long periods of time, more people have invested time before you. And so, in order to be the best, you have to put in more time than them. Okay, that is basically as simple as it is. That's why you see there's some confusion often around the concept of child prodigies. It's really that just a lot of people in order to get enough hours in to be successful in their 20s or 30s had to have started when they were like three because otherwise there's not enough time okay this this that makes a lot more a lot more sense the other thing that i that i was kind of getting out of that is with this deliberate practice um but here's my question with that is is it it sounds like it's it's actually thinking about what you're practicing but isn't that the same as like when we read books like we're reading we're, 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 it's because that seems like it would be an intentional thing, whereas podcasts listening to or something like that where we're learning stuff. Is there a difference between that? Like, yes. Okay. So, so basically when you read – I talk about this in the book. Um, I talk about this in the book is that one of the things I thought was so interesting was that these creators that I interviewed, these creative geniuses that I interviewed, over and over again, the things that – um, I thought so interesting. Like you would talk about this as creation, originality, and innovation, all this stuff. But a lot of them engaged in imitation. So one of the things they all did was they all engaged in imitation, where they would try and figure out, okay, what is like the structure of great creative works. So Kurt Vonnegut, for example, he at one point was trying to get a master's in anthropology, and he ended up not doing it because. Uh, and I quote, he didn't realize how stupid primitive people were. <laughs> and so he was trying to get this master's in anthropology, even though he didn't finish for his thesis. What he did is he mapped out literally on a graph, he mapped out the positive and negative emotional valence of different stories. And he wanted to see what are the consistent story arcs that were out there. And what he realized was that one of the most popular and most successful story arcs is rags to riches. And he actually has a little graph he made of this. And what I found over and over again was that these great creatives actually often spend a lot of time imitating and figuring out, well, what are the things that have worked before? And doing that is really important. But that is not just reading a book, right? That is a very sort of intentional thoughtful, methodical way of consuming information where you're actually trying to think through and oftentimes actually write out, okay, what is the structure of this? So I talk about in the book, Andrew Ross Sorkin, who has this like amazing career as a media renaissance man. He is the, he's an anchor on Squawk Box on CNBC. He created the Deal Book blog on the New York Times. He wrote the book Too Big to Fail, and he's the co-creator of the show on Showtime, Billions. Not bad. And one of the things he told me that was so interesting was how he learned how to become a journalist was at 22, he got a job at the New York Times um, London Bureau because he had been an intern in college and he was sort of endearing and everyone liked him. And he was terrified because he was like, I don't know how to write for the New York Times. And so what he did is he took articles from the front page of the business section. He was a business reporter. And he would take articles from the front page and he would create outlines of their structure. Did they start with a quote? Did they start with an anecdote? Did they start with evidence? How did they develop the argument? And by finding that structure, by imitating that structure, but then adding his own things within that, that was a way he was able to become great much more quickly. And so that's the difference between you know, just reading a book or just reading an article in the New York Times and actually like doing what I like to call interactive imitation. Can you explain that a little bit more, interactive imitation? Yeah, so basically it's this idea that you look at a 
great piece of work, something you know is good, and you actually look at it and break it down into its component parts. So, you know, is it, it's, if it's you know, similar, you know, with Kurt Vonnegut, what is the emotional arc of the story? Because then, once you actually know what that arc is, when you're crafting your story, you can follow that arc, and you don't have to focus on, well, what's the right arc to use? You can focus on the smaller details. And so it basically gives you a sort of like a structure or a framework with which to fit in your own stuff. And this is so important because, again, we talked about how great creative things, things that really take fire, are this balance of the familiar and the novel. And so by understanding the structure of success, you understand the structure of what is familiar. So you can just focus on your own little bit of novelty. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the next thing that you kind of talk about in the book is you talk about you know how there's these four laws of the creative curve, and we want to talk about just a couple of them. And really the first one is just the idea of consumption and that, you know, whenever it comes to creating, it has to do a lot with consuming. And so where, like, does it just depend on where, or does it, I guess the question that I'm asking is, does what you're consuming, is that determined by your subject matter or can people go outside of their subject matter? What would you say? So, yeah, one of the things we think about so interesting is I've seen these, like, quotes and stuff on social media around, you know, 90% of people consume, 9% of people um, engage, and 1% of people create. I'm like, you need to be a creator. And the thing is that when you actually look at the creative practitioners, the people who are supposed to be just spending all their time creating, they actually spend a huge amount of time consuming, consuming information. And the reason why is twofold. So one is that if you want to create things that have the right level of familiarity, you have to know what's out there. You have to know what's already out there that your audience has experienced so you know what will be familiar. Huh. The other reason why consumption is so important is that how our brain processes things differs by hemisphere. So our left hemisphere is where we engage in logical processing. So this is very like step by step. So think about it as like in college, you had that lab partner that was kind of loud and like talked through everything like, okay, we're going to do this and then that, then that, and then look, I have the answer. Your right hemisphere is where you get what we think of as sudden insights. And your right hemisphere is where you do more sort of like distant processing where you connect disparate concepts together. But this all happens subconsciously. And so it's like the quiet lab partner is like kind of mumbling to themselves. And only once they get the answer do they go, hey, hey guys, I got it. I got it. And only then does it pop into consciousness. And to us as people, this feels magical because all of a sudden we're just getting these ideas. But that's just how our right hemisphere processes information. It's not magical. It's just how it does. And so What's interesting is that consumption also plays a huge role in having aha moments because in order to have aha moments, you have to have memories, experiences, mental models, things in your right hemisphere for it to connect, right? You know, J.K. Rowling, the reason why, you know, she dreams about, you know, stories and characters is that she spent her entire childhood basically locked up in her room reading books because she wanted to get away from her parent drama. Um, Ted Sarandos, who I interviewed, was the chief content officer of Netflix. And as an 18-year-old, he got a job as a clerk at a VHS rental store and literally decided he would watch every single movie in the store. That's what he did, watch every single movie in the store. And so the result of that is your right hemisphere just has like more ingredients to work with, right? You have the sort of the electricity for light bulb moments. And one of the things that was so interesting is that um, all these people, it was like, they all go very, very deep, very narrow. So I think there's this sort of misnomer that to be creative, you know, you need to know a lot about a lot of different things. Mm, turns out that's not true. What's actually is that go very, very deep in their very specific field, because that's how you really create things that are going to take off, that are going to be that right blend of familiar and novel, because you're going to know lots about that, and your brain is constantly going to be coming up with new ideas related to that field. It sounds like kind of like an expert bias, because um, you're right. Like One of the things that, that you hear oftentimes is people need to be very diverse, you know, almost like an expert generalist. Um, so what you're saying is that it's really important for people to go depth rather than width. 
Correct. So with that, hundred percent. So with that, if somebody wants to be, you know, if they're they're in whatever field it is, um, should they go? What you're saying is they should go specific, even within that, and and really consume everything that they can, so that creativity can be sparked from there. Correct. You're only going to have like, if you don't obsess over a narrow field, you're not going to have enough stuff percolating in your brain for you to constantly be having interesting aha moments related to this. So like I have a sort of a meta example, which is, you know, I'm writing a book about creativity. So this is, writing a book's a creative process. And before I started doing all this research, I wasn't having like aha moments around, you know, wonky creativity concepts. But when I was researching the book, I was reading thousands of pages of peer-reviewed research on creativity. All of a sudden I'd be like going on a run or at the gym or in the shower. And the aha moments I'm having all of a sudden, there are all these like really goofy concepts and like connecting things in these really wonky academic areas of creativity research. And obviously, it's sort of obvious when you think about it like that. Obviously, I wouldn't have had those aha moments if I hadn't ingested all this content. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, at least from what I tend to find, I think there, I tend to experience a little bit of resistance whenever it comes to consuming stuff, whether it be you know, podcasts or um, books or reading papers or something along those lines. Why do you think that there is this resistance to consuming and people say you should be creating instead? I think that there's this misunderstanding that creativity is easy for some people. And, you know, you should just be waiting and having your waiting for your moments of inspiration. Sort of wait in line. And that's just not true. Like, that's just not how creativity works. Like, the, the, the most successful creators are all some of the biggest consumers of their field. I talk about a bunch of examples in the book, but it, it's just one of the most consistent patterns. Like, the people who are creators, usually they're not particularly well-balanced, right? They are people who are obsessed with something very, very specific. And I think that that, for a lot of people, just also sounds sort of unappealing. Like, mm-hmm. Uh, do I really want to be that obsessed? And so one of the things I talk about in the book is that I think part of the issue and sort of part of the sort of hashtag real talk I think we need to have is that for a lot of us, the inspiration theory of creativity, this idea that creativity is this magical thing, is also a pretty good excuse to avoid hard work. Because the myth is that it's just easy for some people. So I just need to keep trying new creative fields so I find something that's easy. The reality is that no matter what you pick, no matter who you are, it's an incredible amount of hard, thoughtful work. And that's just, I think, something that a lot of people don't want to believe. Yeah. So whenever it comes to consuming, have you found in your research or even from your experience ways that people can, because I imagine part of it's got to be, you know, the difficult part is remembering all the things that you've consumed. (laughs) And so... Have you found any tips or tricks through um, research or even through your experience that helps with that um, re- retention? Yeah. So I think there's, I think on the retention side, I think part of it is obviously people have different sort of note taking processes. Like I did a lot of, um, when I would you know, do stuff for the book, I would basically create, I use workflow, which is this really great sort of like cascading outline tool where your outline, every bullet of your outline can have its own outline. And it's really easy to sort of filter through the different levels. And so mm-hmm. I use that as a way to store thoughts, but that's definitely important. But actually the thing which I found was more interesting was that was really important for like the detail work, but the big think work actually is something I, I think you just have to like put your faith in that it's going to come. You just have to know that if you consume the information, your right hemisphere is going to do its job. It's going to connect concepts. It's going to, it's going to help you there, but there's not really a retention element other than like, you have to actually read the stuff or watch the stuff or listen to the stuff. Yeah. And so the other, the other law that we want to focus on today for whenever it comes for the creative curve is that of creating a creative or having a creative community. And you write about how, that there's different types of people that we need to have in those communities. Can you talk about some of those different people? Yeah. So, so basically, you know, one of the things in creativity is that creativity at the end of the day is a social construct. You know, you think about it as like, oh, well, like this person's creative, that person's creative. Well, that's all of judgment, right? We as a culture, as a group, as a people have agreed, okay, this person is creative. That is a subjective statement. 
we sometimes people go, no, no, it's objective. Well, you can't actually prove it, right? If I showed you two paintings um, and I showed you they were both looked almost exactly alike um, and they both are the Mona Lisa, well, if I just told you to look at them, say you could say, uh, I think they're both creative. But if I told you that one of them is a reproduction that was painted by a fine art student and one of them is the original, you would say the one that's a re reproduction is not creative. So there is this whole sort of contextual social element to what we deem is creative. And so since there's this whole social element and since people have to agree as a group that something is creative for it to be creative, it's kind of circular, you need to have people involved. And so one of the things that they find when they actually research is that the most successful people when it comes to creative achievement are also some of the most well-networked, some of the best at self-promotion, um, you know, some of the ones who are mentored the earliest, for example. And so I talk about that there's these four groups of people who all these creative greats had in their community. And you have to have all four, which I thought was interesting. You have to have all four. So one is kind of straightforward. It's what I call modern muse. And that's someone who like keeps your energy levels up, keeps you motivated, right? Creativity is an up and down thing. So you need that source of inspiration. For a lot of people, these could be other creators, which both can give them sort of emotional reassurance, but also can give them friendly competition, which can help power them to that next level. The second one, the second one is I call a conflicting collaborator. So one of the things when we think about creativity is we think about it as this like solo thing, right? Like Elon Musk is on the cover of the magazine, blah, blah, blah. But everyone has flaws, right? Everyone has weaknesses. Um, you know, talk about Pasek and Paul, the songwriting duo that keeps having all these hits. And what's interesting is, you know, Benj Pasek is this like big thinker, all over the place guy. Justin Paul is this like very, very, very thoughtful, process-driven guy. And together, they cover each other's weaknesses, and as a result, they're successful. Would they be successful independently? I don't know, right? Because they're both, if you think about it, like one isn't a, much of a brainstormer. The other one isn't very good at actually getting things done. And together – with that sort of conflict, that's where they're actually able to be successful. You see this with every type of creative field, even when it doesn't seem obvious. You think about, for example, a writer. You know, I think about my creative process. It's you know my name's on the cover, but if you think about the actual process, there's my research assistant, there's my agent, there's the 15 people who did external readings for me, there's my editor, there's a copy editor, there's a proofreader. You know, there's all these people involved in um, you know, getting the book done. And I couldn't do all of that, right? I could, all those different roles, like I couldn't do that. You need those people to cover your weaknesses. The third one is a master teacher. And so I actually split this out. So I think typically people think about a mentor as um, a master teacher, but I actually split it out and I'll, you'll see why in a second. So a master teacher is someone who helps you with that deliberate practice, mm. who's able to give you that feedback on these very specialized skills of what you need to improve on. The fourth and last one is what I call prominent promoter, which is I think the one that most people, especially early into their creativity, they don't focus on enough. So a prominent promoter is someone who lends you their credibility, right? Think about with musicians. You go on tour, you do a big arena tour, you have a smaller, newer band that opens for you. You're lending them your credibility. This is actually music so interesting because we sort of pass that on. I talk about in the book how you know Rascal Flatts um, had Taylor Swift open for them when she wasn't big, and then you know, Taylor Swift had Shawn Mendes open for her um, when Shawn Mendes wasn't big. Now Shawn Mendes is on a world tour, and he has other people open for him, right? And so there's this sort of credibility lending that goes on. And those last two, a master teacher and a prominent promoter, are often things that I think people look for in a mentor. But I think you actually should split them out because I think more often than not, it's actually easier to find them when they're split out and when they're different people. And so you need to have all four of those, right? Because if you don't have a prominent promoter who lends you credibility and reputation, well, people aren't going to hear about your work. They're not going to actually pay attention to their work. They're not going to give it any credence. So, and if you don't have um, a master teacher, you're not going to have the right technical skills. If you don't have a conflicting collaborator, your weaknesses will overpower you. If you don't have a modern muse, eventually you'll get discouraged and stop.
how do you find so the the two that I'm really interested in are um well really the the, the my, my main one is the master teacher because just because of technology and stuff, does this have to be a person that you actually know, or can you learn things like that from? So, say that you you you're really into a specific person, but you you don't you never met them, but you read everything that they've done. Is that the muse, or can that be actually the master teacher? Yeah, that would be that would be the muse. I mean, the master teacher needs to observe what you're actually doing and being able to give you feedback because that's part of the deliberate practice process. There's in fact a really great book. Mm-hmm. Called, I think it's developing talent in young people or developing young talent. And basically, um, what this researcher did is they looked at um, the sort of life stories of 120 super high achievers who've achieved great things across this wide variety of things. So, you know, arts, athletics, science, all these different things. Of the 120, do you know how many had a master teacher? Mm-hmm. 120. Mm-hmm. Like it is that important. It is literally. You have to have that person because otherwise learning the sort of finesse of these great skills, these skills that seem so hard, so difficult, well, it's really, really hard. So you need that person who's been there, who's done that, who can give you that really nuanced feedback on like, how do you really get better at doing a left-handed dribble? And so, for example, like, you know, I do a lot of public speaking and, um, you know, I'm constantly trying to get better. And the thing is you learn is like, you know, the people who get you better, sort of that saying, you can only get better at tennis if you play tennis with people who are better than you. Uh, the people who get me better at speaking are some of these people who are amazing speakers. And I actually met one yesterday who's been doing this for like 30 years. He charges $100,000 a speech. He's a big, big name. And um, you know, he was giving me some pointers. And there were these little things on how to open my speech, these little, little things. But I knew just in like hearing him, I was like, damn it, this is going to help so much. And that's the type of highly specialized knowledge that you can only get through a master teacher. So the the promoter thing, that seems like you just have to luck into that person, but it's not – is it it more luck or is it strategy? It's strategy. So if you want to get a promoter, one of the things I talk about in the book is like um, there's this thing that sociologists call clustering where basically people who are sort of like-minded cluster together. And so – um, if you want to find a promoter, like you kind of have to like put yourself in a place where you will experience luck, right? If you want to break into the fine art world, well, you better move to New York right away, right? You are not going to bump into a prominent promoter in Nashville, Tennessee, in the fine art world. If you want to do country music, you better move to Nashville or LA right away because that's where you're going to find the prominent promoters. And so, you know, there is an element of luck. But I think this is one of those examples where you can greatly increase your odds by doing some basic things like moving to the right cities, you know, reaching out cold to people and sending really thoughtful messages and trying to get connected to them. Um, you know, Brian Grazer has a book called A Curious Mind, which is all about sort of like how to how to be curious in a way which sort of attracts people to you. And I think that's a really good read for people who are particularly interested in that. So just as we're getting ready to wrap up, one question that I want to ask you is, you know, doing the, doing all this research and everything, I know that it's had to make a profound impact on you. What was one of the things in your research that maybe surprised you the most? I think one of the things that surprised me the most, and this is sort of a meta point, was, you know, I went into it, the process with this expectation of writing a book that sort of gave some level of illumination to the creative process. Right, like some partial illumination. I sort of still went into it saying, well, there's probably some things that are unexplainable. What I was shocked by, and I don't want to sound hyperbolic, but what I was shocked by was like, damn, scientists really have this creativity thing on lock. There is like a lot of science on it. And it's it's not particularly um, inconclusive. Like it's actually pretty clear how the creative process works. And I was just shocked by that. Because I knew that I'd be able to illuminate it more, but I was shocked by the extent that it is truly something you can understand. And um, I think it's really unfortunate and really sad that I think we don't sort of acknowledge that enough in society because I think it leaves a lot of people on the sidelines. You know, um, everyone when they're five and they're finger painting thinks they're creative. And by the time they're 18, you know, very few people do. And I think that's really unfortunate. Yeah. So just as we're wrapping up, we always have a couple of questions that we love to ask all of our guests. And the first one, 
Yeah. So the <laughs> first one is, what is one thing that you've started doing that has helped you a lot, either personally or professionally? So I think for me, uh, a really strong fitness routine, pun not intended, is has been super important. I mean, it, it's my, for me, that's the moment where I have the most sort of like clarity. It's my sort of it's more my time where I experience aha moments the most. Mm-hmm. How do you learn best? I'm a visual learner. Um, so I, you know, I read a lot. I, you know, at, at work, I like people to make slideware for me and do charts. I have. You know, I can, um, I, you know, audio, for example, I'm not a huge like audio book or podcast person. I just find that I, I really much more experience sort of seeing either the text or the charts or the illustrations. Sure. If you could have anyone learn one thing about creativity, what would it be? Oh, like if, I if, think if, the, if, sorry, what? Yeah. If you could have everyone learn one thing about creativity, what would it be? I, I said the question slightly wrong. No, no, it's okay. Uh, everyone learn one thing. I think the the big thing would be that um, you need to really understand the social element of creativity, right? This idea that like to be creative is also to be recognized, right? That is such a critical concept, and one that I think when you when you acknowledge that, it sort of makes the world go from two D to three D because it's a it's such an incredible important element to creativity. But I think one that is so overlooked is so misunderstood by people early in the in the game, so to speak. People who are very successful, they get it, right? They are very very aware. I mean, the world's best musicians know, like, hey, I want to be a featured artist on this other pop star song because that's part of the way that I get credibility. Right. And that's sort of a, a currency that's traded among these really famous artists. That's why when you, when you see it, you're like, why are they doing that? It's like, well, that's a way that they all sort of prop each other up. And so once you get that social element, it totally changes your approach and your mindset to creativity. And so our final question is, what are you learning right now? Oh, my God. What am I learning right now? Well, I've I've recently gone through a. Um, a lot of uh, sort of personal life dramatics. I'm getting uh, divorced. And so I think I'm reading a lot of books on love and romance. And I think trying to do some self-reflection on that. How's that for a final answer? <laughs> That's a, <laughs> we've yeah. never had that one before. Yeah. Great. Well, Alan, if people want to continue to learn from you and purchase the book, where's the best place for them to do that? Um, so thecreativecurve.com has links to all the retailers. You can buy it at all the all the places you'd want to buy. Um, there's an audiobook. I narrated it. Uh, all that good stuff. So yeah, thecreativecurve.com. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us on the Learner's Corner today. Thanks, guys. Bye. Caleb, what did you just learn from Alan? That was incredible. There was so much that I took away from that conversation. But I think one of the things is he mentioned that whenever it comes to the mentor role, We try to have that person actually fulfill two roles. And he said, most people aren't equipped to do that. Someone can help you in like the quote unquote mentor role. It could help teach you and help guide you like to improve your craft. But then, and I mean, we talked, we talked about this a little bit with Sam uh, Collier a couple of weeks ago or last week, but then you need someone who can actually help fund and provide opportunities for you to do what you do. And so I'd never thought about that before. And so it was brilliant. that was one of the big ideas that stood out to me. What about for you? You know, I, I just, as I was thinking through creativity, he really challenged a lot of preconceived notions I think I had about creativity and what that actually looks like. Um, you know, I mean, I guess I guess everybody kind of would would stumble upon, I, I suppose, the, the thing of a muse of having a person who, who you, who's a contemporary who you can kind of watch. But for me, like, I've, when, what do you think of that? Do you think of that as actual art? But, like, that's for everything. And so for me, I've started just looking at podcasts because, I mean, hey, this is kind of – we do this, right? And I've started looking at podcasts and just reaching out to folks and asking them, hey, what are you doing and how are you doing it? And it's been super helpful, like, to be able to hear some of some folks. And it's not that we necessarily implement everything that, that we find out, but it's super helpful to know. And so that was, that was a major takeaway me awesome well if you enjoyed this episode oh my goodness we have a good episode for you in just a few days today we are going to be talking with gina mclean some of you may be familiar with gina she recently authored a book called don't quit and it came out 
a couple of months ago, but that's not what we're talking about with her. We got the chance to talk with her about some exclusive stuff that, oh my goodness. Guys, just, you're going to want to listen to this Should I tease it at all? Go ahead. Go ahead. You already basically have. So we, so her book is called Don't Quit, but she recently left. She kind of quit. She kind of quit. And so, and t- don't worry, she took a new job. She it's new under job. good. It's under good circumstances. And so stuff transitions. Like so we talk with her about leaving well Ooh. and some other great stuff as well. And the best way to make sure you don't miss that next episode is how Todd you can subscribe. Subscribe to that bad boy. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. There you go. Also, let us know what you learned from this episode. Let us know. Hey, tag us and let us know if you bought Alan's book. And let us know what you're currently learning from it and uh, what you're reading right now. We would always enjoy that. Also, if this podcast has helped you in any way, leave us a rating and write a review on the podcast on iTunes. It means so much to us that you do that. And it helps. uh, It's one of the best ways that you can support this podcast as well. And so thank you so much for doing that in advance. I know that some of the person who is leaving the rating and writing the review right now. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate it. This is us giggling right now. We're just laughing at ourselves. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. My name is Caleb Mason. And my name is Todd Hicksonball. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing. Deuces, y'all.